Welcome to Always On Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. I'm Rosemary Maffey. And I'm Tom Lyman. We're coming to you from the Archdiocese of Boston. We hope to bring you some joy and encouragement during this challenging time. We do that every week by profiling the life of a saint who evangelized in his or her own way in a challenging time, but also by interviewing someone who's doing the same thing today. Welcome back to our listeners. We encourage you to please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please do give us a rating. So let's dive in. How's it going, Tom? Good. Time is flying. It's hard to believe that it's actually the last full week of June. And yet, finally, the first week of the summer. What are some ways you like to really enjoy the summer? Well, one of my favorite things is to get out on my bike and enjoy the country roads around the South Shore of Massachusetts and and, uh, and the coast as much as I can. And in fact, this weekend uh, kind of restored an old bike that I had and attached a trailer to it that my cousins donated. And um, we can now take Andy around on the back of the bike. So he had a blast yesterday kind of riding around the neighborhood. That is so fun. And it's beautiful weather out. So I'm glad that you are out as a family enjoying that sunshine. So even though it's just the start of the summer, Tom, our parishes are already well underway with their planning for the fall. And we were so excited to just announce to them that we're going to have a helpful resource to bring provide to them. It's called Project Nazareth. Share with us and the listeners a little bit about what is that? I'm really excited about this too, Rosemary. So Project Nazareth is a unique home-based faith family, faith formation option. Um, That is, it's not like online learning. It's not your religious ed classroom online, like your your school might have been online during the pandemic, but rather it's a, a simple set of resources based on sacred scripture, the Bible, and the catechism that follows week by week the, mat, the, the, the readings we have at Mass and gives families with children of different ages options of ways to, to pray about, pray together with it, to read it, to learn from it, and to discuss. Um, and so it's, it's very practical, very simple, gives you ways to think more deeply about our faith and, and to come in contact uh, with the Lord Jesus through these wonderful resources. Um, so we're hopeful that this will provide a flexible way for families to deepen in the life of faith, uh, all the while being safe amid, amidst the potential risks of coronavirus, uh, but perhaps in the long run serving as a, uh, a really viable form of faith formation. And really, with a focus of building up the domestic church and helping parents be feel equipped to share and pass down the faith. So what a beautiful thing. We're really excited to give this to families and parishes as they begin planning for the fall. Tom, I am so excited about this episode. We are going to talk with Sister Amada Filia of the Sisters of Life. And the saint for today, I think he also was one who was big on building up the culture of life. Who is the saint for today, Tom? Our saint for today was born Carol Joseph Wojtyła. You know him better as St. John Paul II, John Paul the Great, as many love to call him. And so we chose him today because um, he is so intimately connected 
with our own understanding of the value of human life, you know, um, and we're going to focus, I mean, you could, you know, there have been many large, long books, big, thick books written about his life and all the amazing things that he did and what a groundbreaking papacy he had. Uh, but we're going to focus just on three uh, elements of his of his priesthood and papacy, which were some of the different things that he wrote and proclaimed. Uh, the book Love and Responsibility, his theology of the body, and finally, his encyclical letter on the gospel of life. And we think that this will lead us into a great conversation with Sister Amada in the second half of the show. So that's that's where we're starting. Rosemary, tell me, you had a personal experience with John Paul II. Is that right? Tom, John Paul II is the only canonized saint that I've actually seen in person. It was so exciting. Back in 1992, my family was traveling through Europe, and my stepdad happened upon tickets to be able to go to Mass with him on the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul. So I got to lock eyes with him as he processed down at the beginning of Mass. It was so powerful. And I really have a great fondness for him. So I'm excited to hear more um, that you have to share with us today. So tell us, Tom, a little bit about the early life of St. John Paul II. So he was born on May 18th, 1920. We just would have celebrated the 100th anniversary of his birthday in Wadowice, Poland, which is about 30 miles outside Krakow. Um, but his family had, a, he had a difficult young life. His mother died when he was eight. Uh, and the next day, his father brought him and his older brother to an outdoor shrine. And it was there that he told the boys that the Virgin Mary would look after them until the day they would be reunited with their mother in heaven. And sadly, just a few years later, his own brother, who was a bit older, quite a bit older, uh, died when Carol was 11, only 11 years old. And the young Carol was thrown into a life of prayer. And the witness of his own father as a man of deep prayer and trust in God, you know, simple trust and love of God and his loving plan for him, this made a deep impact on the young Carol Wojtyła. But he was an interesting young man. He uh, he loved the theater. From the age of 14, he got into acting and, and different plays and even writing plays himself as a young college student. But then everything changed uh, in September 1939 when the Nazi invasion began. And he himself had to flee great devastation and immediate physical danger from uh, you know, bombings and strafing runs of uh, the German Air Force. Uh, so this was um, a deeply, deeply troubling time in, uh, you know, that he and so many other Polish suffered through, of course, the, the loss of four million, four million Polish Jews in the Holocaust, many of whom, you know, uh, John Paul knew as his neighbors and friends and playmates. Um, but John Paul, or not John Paul, he was Carol at this time, uh, began to discern a vocation to the priesthood. Uh, and he entered seminary, though it was a clandestine one. It was a, uh, the, the seminarians frequently had to duck for cover or to evade discovery by the, um, by the authorities at the time. What was Carol's priesthood like? So he was ordained November 1st, 1946. And, you know, he had a particular affinity and a gift 
for young people, for, you know, uh, from initially his parish working with young kids in the school, but later he himself taught in the university and he had a wonderful way with university students. And he evangelized these young folks, especially on trips to the country, taking them hiking and canoeing and all kinds of outdoorsy activities. But believe it or not, these kinds of trips, uh, taking groups of young people out on your own, was against the law of the communist government at the time because they suspected such gatherings to be uh, places of anti-government activism, which is you know just shows you how terribly suspicious um, and evil really that form of government was. Um, and so to get around this, they would do these trips, but they had they could not call him, you know, Father Carroll. They had to call him Vujek, which was the word uncle. So he was their uncle. He was everybody's uncle. And he called them his Rodzinka, his little family. And uh, so whenever they would be stopped, they would all say, oh, hey, uncle, where, you know, wh what are we doing next? You know, they would, they would refer to him as a family member and kind of get around the, um, uh, the authorities this way. But on these trips, he had many, many long conversations, you know, time spent around the campfire, discussions about you know, hot topics of the day, discussions about the faith, the gospel, Jesus, you know, reading and praying together, some of the great spiritual works, sitting around and reading C.S. Lewis, um, asking the tough questions. You know, can't you imagine, Rosemary, wouldn't this have been wonderful if, you know, we had been those college students as part of these gatherings? I mean- I would have loved uh, that. Oh my gosh, I would have just eaten it up. And uh, can you imagine how this would have impacted your life if you had known him at an early age like that? You know, and so- the, the, they get to have healthy debates and sit there and, and, and relax around a meal. But this led to deep friendships and lifelong relationships, you know, throughout even his later priesthood, episcopacy and papacy. And what do you know, uh, an, an outstanding young priest like this was called to be bishop and he was consecrated bishop of Krakow in 1958. At the age of 38, by the way, which is extraordinarily young. It's almost as young as you can be to be a bishop. Wow. Bishop Wojtyła wrote a groundbreaking work in love and responsibility. What was love and responsibility about? So in 1960, he published this work in Polish, and it was based on his conversations with many young married couples and young people uh, about kind of the intimacy of their married life, about their about their sexuality, in fact. I and mean, this is a controversial topic for a priest to be uh, diving into. But he felt the need to dive into a theological investigation into the nature of love and relationships. Because remember, at this same time, this is 1960, throughout the 1950s, um, we have the likes of Alfred Kinsey, who is promoting what would unfold in the sexual revolution. We also had Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and, and all of this rising up and the, the culture of uh, contraception being investigated, well, contraception being investigated and tried and tested and soon it would be marketed. And so he was seeing all this kind of happening before it became, you know, common practice or legal or any of these things. And he's diving into what is the nature of all of these things. Um, and the, the premise of the book is essentially this, that because the human person is made in the image and likeness of God, the only adequate response to another person is love. And this love that he's speaking about is not a feeling, but a love that wills the good of the other. This is what St. Thomas Aquinas would define as love, willing the good of the other. And we know that 
John Paul was a big follower of Aquinas. And this love that wills the good of the other, another way to say that is uh, love that desires what is best for another person. So this is, this is not the feeling uh, that one gets in a relationship with a fuzzy feeling, the warm feeling. This is love in action, love that you know, actively seeks out another's good. But he also explored the notion that the body and the sexual drive are good because God made them, but that they need to be ordered to the good of the other person, right? Because that they had been harmed by original sin. You know, the the inclinate, the uh, concupiscence, the tendency towards sin that is a result of our original sin, despite the fact that our baptism wipes away the punishment due to us for original sin, the effects of original sin remain. And so this is uh, a big part of the Christian life, allowing God to reclaim us and to restore us. Now, Rosemary, can you tell us a little bit about how this early work laid the foundation for the Holy Father's theology of the body? Sure, Tom. So I had the great privilege of learning a little bit more about the theology of the body. In the last decade, I went twice out to the Theology of the Body Institute in Pennsylvania, and it was such a beautiful opportunity to be immersed both head and heart in this beautiful teaching of St. John Paul II. It's actually a collection of his lectures during his Wednesday audiences from 1979 to 1984. And he provides an integrated vision of what it means to be a human person. He actually gleaned this from Genesis. I don't know about you, but I'm amazed by the profound, deep, and beautiful understanding he has when he read Genesis. Um, it's just so powerful. So the theology of the body provides, a, um, it reclaims what it means, the original innocence meant for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Understanding how this image was tarnished by original sin, but can be restored and reclaimed by Jesus Christ. A real theme of the theology of the body is self-gift and the dignity and worth of the body. There's a reason that we're embodied souls. And this is in direct contrast to society's um, proclamation that the body can and should be just used for pleasure or objectified. No, we believe that it can be given away as self-gift and has immense worth because we were created in the image and likeness of God, a God who loves us. He talks us. about how, how the opposite of love is not hate, but in fact use, you know, that the tendency toward uh, toward using another person instead of loving them, willing their good. This is the real sin. Yes. And this isn't a list of do's and don'ts, Tom, but rather just a full understanding, again, of the dignity of the human person. And this is really a fundamental starting point for all of JP2's teachings. So, Tom, tell us a little bit about his encyclical letter, The Gospel of Life. Yes, and you know, we're just celebrating the 25th anniversary of this encyclical this year, written in 1995. And this was really a prophetic document written at the time to reaffirm the value and inviolability of every human life and to appeal to all people. So, you know, encyclical letters aren't just addressed to Catholics, they're addressed to the whole world. But appealing to all people to respect, protect, love, and serve every human life. And in this encyclical, which is not, not super long, it's a short book, I highly recommend it to anybody, he began to identify new threats to human life, which had kind of only accelerated in the wake of the popular rejection 
of Pope Paul VI's 1968 encyclical Humane Vitae, you know, which proclaimed that um, that artificial contraception was not in accord with Catholic teaching. It was counter to God's design. And but many other things happened, just as Paul VI had also prophesied. Uh, and so now uh, John Paul is calling these things out by name. And what are they? They're things such as abortion, uh, the rise of euthanasia. Now, in 1995, we were only just beginning to hear about, you know, Dr. Kevorkian and, and um, assisted suicide and this sort of thing. And now this has taken on such this movement has taken on such strength that. Uh, assisted suicide has actually been legalized in a number of American states and in certain entire European countries. Um, and despite the warnings or the, the assurances that it's not going to get more serious than it is, it always does. And now we see even in, uh, I think, in Belgium and, and in the Netherlands, where they're finding reasons to allow children to to receive assisted suicide. It's just unbelievable. So John Paul and Paul VI were very right that these initial assaults and disrespect on God's plan um, bear out in much, much worse ways down the road when you follow the philosophy to its logical end. Another thing he began to call out was embryonic stem cell research or fetal tissue research, these types of things that were used using um, cells from aborted fetuses. Um, cloning, and also even the death penalty. And though, though the death penalty is not um, of the same, uh, not a, of exactly the same level as abortion, John Paul makes the uh, claim that in today's world, the death penalty is essentially no longer necessary because we do have the ability in the 20th century at that time, now the 21st, to keep our society safe by other means. Um, by, you know, in other words, by incarcerating someone as opposed to uh, executing them for the safety of society. So all of these things are, are really uh, groundbreaking in the way that I think, Rosemary, they address head on some of the ways in which um, modernity had really begun to go down some bad roads. I mean, you could trace all of these things philosophy, uh, philosophically back quite a ways longer, I would argue. Um, and, and, you know, professors of philosophy would do so in a, in a way that I, I cannot correctly and in great detail at this moment. But uh, John Paul, we, sh we owe him a great debt of gratitude for giving us the language and giving us a vision of the human person that contrasts with the impoverished vision of the human person that we're left with. You know, we're materially rich now uh, in much of the 21st century world compared to how we were, say, a century ago. But even those who are so material, materially rich are often spiritually poor. And so John Paul gives us, gives everyone, regardless of material wealth, a way to become spiritually rich in recognizing who, uh, who we are in beloved sons and daughters of God. Thanks so much, Tom. I mean, there's so much to be said for this great saint, Pope St. John Paul II. Thanks for this wonderful introduction and particular focus on the vision he gives us for understanding our dignity and worth as children of God. Could you close us in a prayer? Absolutely, Rosemary. And this is the collect from the optional memorial of John Paul II, St. John Paul II, which is October 22nd, when it's time to celebrate that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. O God, rich in mercy, who willed that Pope St. John Paul II should preside over your universal church, grant, we pray, that instructed by his teaching, 
we may confidently open our hearts to the saving grace of Christ, the sole Redeemer of the human race, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks so much, Tom. Well, our guest, Sister Amada Filia of the Sisters of Life, promotes this culture of life that Pope St. John Paul II gave us a vision for. We look forward to that conversation, but before you tune in, I encourage you to hit pause. Share with us on social media, how are you working to promote the gospel of life? Use the hashtag alwaysonmission and tag us. Our handle is RCAB underscore evangelize. Stay tuned for our conversation with Sister Amada. Welcome back to Always On Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. Tom and I have a treat for you. We are joined by Sister Amada Filia of the Sisters of Life. Welcome, Sister Amada. Thank you. Thank you. It's so nice to be here with you <laughs> remotely. Yeah. I love the Sisters of Life. So I've been so excited to get to know you and hear more about your beautiful order. So start us off by just sharing a little bit about your background, your family life, what led you to discern joining the Sisters of Life? Sure. Yeah, it was uh, a surprise to me, I think, <laughs> as much as anybody. Um, I grew up in a small town in Texas, Uh far away from a lot of things and just, you know, just live in my normal life. I grew up Catholic, um, but I wouldn't say I was from a super devout family. You know, we went to Sunday mass and, you know, tried to be good people, but it kind of stopped there. You know, I didn't, I didn't really have a deep relationship with the Lord and I certainly didn't have much exposure to religious life um, growing up. But when I went to college at Texas A&M University, it was there that I really came to know Jesus, really, um, in my faith. I It started just actually looking for social opportunities, <laughs> and I ended up uh, getting roped into some things at the Catholic campus ministry there, which is very strong and, and fervent, and met some amazing people who really introduced me to the beauty and riches of the church. And I just started going to, to daily mass and to adoration. And I went on a retreat there that changed my life. And it really uh, propelled me into this new world that I didn't even realize had existed in terms of of the Lord. And he really captured my heart. Um, but still, religious life wasn't on my radar screen for quite some time. I after graduation, I started working for the pro-life movement, actually, uh, at our little local nonprofit uh, place in town. Um, and it was during when I was working there that I was just praying, you know, as most young adults are doing, asking the Lord, like, well, what is, what is your will for me? Um, trying to answer those big questions. And he really, like, spoke very gently, <laughs> um, but just saying that he wanted everything from me. I don't know. It's hard to describe. You know, there's so many amazing graces that he pours out that are like just intimate in the heart that it's hard to even put words to. Um, but essentially 
lots of little pathways. He kind of rolled out the red carpet, I would say for me. Uh, I went on a pilgrimage where I encountered a sister that uh, awakened some desires in my heart. I kind of saw how joyful and beautiful she was. And it really like spoke to my heart and it made me think like, I want what she has. And I knew of the Sisters of Life through my work in the pro-life world and finally got up the courage to call them. And from the beginning, it was just peace, um, a real peace that came into my heart um, when I was around the sisters and when I was speaking to them and I came on a visit and just knew that it was the direction I had to go. So praise be to God. I made my final vows in the year 2015 and it's been quite an adventure. I never in a million years thought I would be living in New York City and doing this kind of work, but it's been a, a total joy. Well, praise be to God, indeed. Thank you for sharing that beautiful story. And I think it's really encouraging to those doing campus ministry to hear about the powerful experience you had in college. How beautiful. Talk to us a little bit about the Sisters of Life. Folks might be familiar with uh, the Sisters, but share with us a little bit more, in particular, your charisms. Of course, yeah. We... Uh, our community was founded in the year 1991. So we're a relatively new community in the church. Um, you know, some of the Dominicans and Franciscans are celebrating their 800-year anniversary, and we're like, we're almost 30. <laughs> we're like little babies in the church. But um, we know that the Holy Spirit raises up uh, that which is needed for a given time in history. And our founder, Cardinal O'Connor, who was the Archbishop of New York back in the 1980s and 90s, um, was a, a strong voice for life um, and, and saw what was going on in our culture and that this culture of death was really so prevalent in our world. And, you know, things were, were happening and people were, were doing things to try to combat that. But he he knew that it was ultimately a spiritual battle. Uh, this kind of demon can only be cast out by prayer and fasting um, is in the gospel, but I think applies to this situation and, and that an organization or more than an organization, a, a community of, of women who are totally given and laid down their lives and vowed themselves to protecting those who are most vulnerable. Um, so, we come from all over the country, even all over the world. There's uh, over a hundred of us now in the in the Sisters of Life in multiple different missions, and we our charism is essentially to protect and enhance the sacredness of human life, to try to remind the world that each each person, each one of us is made in the image and likeness of God, is unique and unrepeatable and precious in God's eyes, and just deserves to be reverenced and loved. Obviously, we see so many attacks on human life in so many forms from abortion to euthanasia and everything in between. And so we try to go and be in those places. Um, one of the primary works that we do is with pregnant women who are in crisis, who um, are just in need of some support and encouragement to move forward into making a life-giving decision. Um, so we walk with them. 
along the way as their sort of cheerleaders and, and really as their mothers, as their spiritual mothers, hopefully to give them hope, you know, that it is possible. One of our houses actually welcomes some of those women to come in and live with the sisters in community during the time of their pregnancy, which is a beautiful um, environment of just love. And you really see them blossom and flourish as they welcome their little ones into the world. Um, we also have a ministry of hope and healing for those who have suffered an abortion in their past. Um, just to, again, I think hope is so central to, to everything, just to know that God's mercy is, is bigger than any sin, any mistake, and that Jesus um, desires their hearts to be healed and to be whole again, and that that's possible even after um, even after that wound that so many have been carrying for so long. And we do a lot of evangelization to, again, try to build a culture of life, just to proclaim that life is is worth living and is is good and is is beautiful in God's eyes. So. Sister, one more question on this topic. What are the vows that each of you take as a sister of life? Yes, like most traditional religious communities, we profess vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, but our community actually, in addition, takes a, a fourth vow that's unique to, to our charism, to our community, which is to protect and enhance the sacredness of human life. And so really everything kind of flows out of out of that. We are a contemplative, active community, so a little bit of both. It's like a nice balance. Uh, prayer is our primary, our primary work, and we know that any apostolate to serve others is only possible because of that relationship in prayer that flows from that. We can't give what we don't have, right? So we fill ourselves up with Jesus, and um, then hopefully that spills over into the women that we have the privilege to serve. Sister, I think it's so cool that even if we're not sisters of life, we can be co-workers of life. Share with us a little bit about how men and women use their talents to support your beautiful ministry. Yes, our co-workers of life are amazing, um, generous people, lay people who kind of link arms with the sisters and help us in our missions. There's there's only so many of us and we serve hundreds and hundreds of women, new calls that we get every year. So we really can't do it without them. So we've found that there are so many lay people out there who uh, want to give of themselves for their the cause of life. And so they sign up with us and, and we're able to connect them with the moms who we're working with. So for instance, you know, a pregnant woman reaches out to us and she's very abortion vulnerable and is in sort of a crisis situation. And, you know, maybe she needs somebody to go to the doctor's appointments with her or to help her find a new place to live. Or, you know, we'll connect her with all those sorts of resources. But in addition, we try to surround her with coworkers who can kind of be our hands and feet, especially out there with her um, to, to, who doesn't need another friend, right? First of all, just to be another positive and encouraging voice in her life, someone that she can talk to and lean into, as well as do some of the practical things that might help make her journey a little bit easier. We have um, guys who can 
go and build a crib for her when it's time for the baby to, to come or um, help her build up her resume so that she can find a, a better job or everything under the sun, drive her to, she's moving into a maternity home. And so we get a team to help her pack up her stuff and bring her there um, in style, you know, whatever it is that will ease some of the fears and the burdens that she might be experiencing, our coworkers step in uh, with big hearts and big smiles and lots of love to uh, buoy her up and help her to know her goodness and her strength. Because once she has a sense of that, she'll be much more able to accept anything that God gives her, including this new life that he's entrusting to her. Sister, tell us a little bit about how some of these ministries that you've talked about shifted during the time of the pandemic. Yeah, it's been a challenge. Um, our relation, our our ministry is very relationship based. I would say we do all of the meetings with the moms. We love to do them in person, face to face, as much as we can. There's something about sitting down with a woman and having a tea party with her, which we love to do. Um, you know, and to really just talk for hours and listen to her whole story. And um, you know, with that not being possible in these days, it's everything has shifted to virtually or over the phone. So we're still very much serving um, as best we can under these circumstances, just not as much in person. Um, And same with our coworkers, um, just for their own safety, as well as the safety of the moms. We haven't been able to coordinate as much direct interaction between coworkers and moms, but they've still been serving remotely everything from... um, just calling her on the phone or texting, or we've had coworkers who have bought groceries online and had them sent to the women's houses so that they didn't have to go out to the grocery store. Um, and then even ourselves, the sisters have been doing a lot of deliveries of food and baby items. We've made connections with some food distributors and we have a whole storeroom full of cribs and diapers and baby clothes that um, we have on hand. And so we've been taking them out to the women ourselves. <laughs> they come down and meet us at the car and we're all wearing our mask and we do a quick trade-off, but it's we've been able to serve over 300 families in the last two months or so um, going out and and dropping off nece- necessary items to them. And I would, I would say really we've just upped our prayer in these times too. Um, the, the sisters have added an extra holy hour of intercession just for the world and for everyone who is suffering and affected by these circumstances. So it's it's been, again, a challenge, but I think also a beautiful, almost uniting event, I think. I feel like we, we all know that we're in the same boat together, even though we're not physically together, there's a spiritual connection um, that really illustrates to me just how connected we all are as the body of Christ and we need each other. And so just to pray more intensely during this time has been a gift in many ways. Sister, can you share with us any um, particularly profound moments you've had in some of these encounters or maybe these holy hours that you've added Uh, anything particularly profound during the time of the pandemic? Yeah, like I said, it's been hard because we want to just lavish our love on these on these women in in direct ways. And since we haven't been able to do that, we've had to get a little creative. Um, 
But just the other day, we some of the sisters went out. There was a woman that we met um, a couple of months ago who she grew up in the foster care system, very wounded relationship. The father of her child was really pushing her to have an abortion, but thankfully she stayed strong. Um, so we've been walking with her for a while, and she, it was we wanted to throw her a baby shower because she had very little um, for this new little one. And so, but since we couldn't do it in the traditional way, we decided to take it on the road. And we decorated uh, the back of one of our minivans, our beat up old minivan. <laughs> we took out the back seat and we filled it with balloons and banners and decorations. And we met this woman out at a local park um, where we could be outdoors and stand not too close to her. <laughs> and we put all the gifts in the back and brought a little cake. And it was just this makeshift little baby shower, but it it brought her so much joy. Um, she was just nearly in tears, you know, that even in the midst of a global pandemic, uh, people would care enough about her to get her what she needed to provide. And, and it was more than just the gifts, you know, it was definitely just the, the presence, I think, of, of someone reaching out and walking with her in the journey. Um, so that's just one little example of our tailgate baby shower, but <laughs> it was powerful. Um, Sounds beautiful, sister. Thank you for sharing that. Sister Amana, during this pandemic and during hard times in general, how do you really lean into the beautiful vocation that you live and your own relationship with Jesus? Sure. Yeah. You know, it is is when 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 times are are uncertain and and a little scary even you know i think the first thing is is just to be real with the lord i know sometimes i just have to start there because if i start with trying to be pious and strong it just doesn't work but when i go before the lord and i'm like jesus I don't like this. <laughs> Can you fix this? You know, this is hard. And just to be very honest with him, first and foremost, just about how, what you're experiencing, but at the same time, to remember who we belong to and that our father is in control. He's in control of this. He's in control of everything that we're facing. And he's, he's not going to leave us in um in the lurch and so i think when we come to him in in prayer and just in surrender there's for me anyway there's been a lot of it's been a an experience of deepening and surrendering because the things that we think we need to have control of um, in situations like this sometimes aren't there that's kind of taken away from us and so to surrender it to the lord and to trust that he will bring good out of anything, even if we may not quite understand it in the moment, has been a powerful lesson for me. And I think, especially as a consecrated bride of Christ, just remembering that relationship as well, that, you know, Jesus is my spouse and we're in this together. We we are one. And so whether whether it's a cross or it's a moment of resurrection, um, in the good and the bad, he's with me. Um, so just, I think that brings just a lot of peace and consolation that we're never alone. And so we can keep, keep walking forward, trusting that Jesus is right with us. 
What a beautiful example that is, certainly to me, of being real with the Lord and surrendering our will to his will and trusting that he's in control. So thank you for that, sister. Sister, next we're going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests, which is, what does it mean to you to be always on mission? Always on mission. Yeah, that's a great phrase. We really are called. Um, and I think our our mission is essentially the same as Christ's mission, which is to do the will of the Father and to love. Like that's, I think, what he taught us most through his own life, his own example, and, and what he calls us to. Um, and that we can actually do that in very simple ways. Um, what I found, I think, especially being in New York City, um, where there's people from all walks of life and you never know who you're going to meet or what their stories are. Um, just a smile or just a, a sense of being joyful or having a peaceful heart or a kind word with somebody <laughs> that can go a long way. And I've been surprised. Um, it's not necessarily always about having to convert the person in front of you in your first conversation, but um, having a look of love for them can actually melt a heart um, in beautiful ways. So I think that's one way is just to keep it simple and to always remember the presence of Christ in you and let that shine out with whoever you're with, to look people in the eye, to recognize their humanity, to see every person that you encounter as a child of God made in his image and likeness. And, you know, and to try not to get too caught up in the mentality of we have to do this and do that. Because because I think ultimately it's about being, overdoing, you know, and we hear that phrase a lot, but it's it's so true that if you're rooted first in your identity as a child of God and that you are good just because you are outside of anything that you can accomplish or or achieve, that that has power behind it. And, and actually the witness of that can transform the world. So just to remember your own goodness and, and that of those around you um, can build a culture of life and can serve um, that mission that we're called to have. Sister Amada, this has been a true delight. And I hope all of you listening really recognize how beloved you are as a child of God and choose to see the beauty in each person you encounter. Sister, could you close us in a prayer? Of course. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Come Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We bless you. We thank you for your goodness for your love, for your providence. We thank you for holding us in your hands through every step of the way, even in these difficult and challenging times. We ask you to make yourself known. Fill our hearts with your peace and allow our lives to shine with the radiance and the joy and the love that you have given through your son, Jesus, and through the Holy Spirit. May we always be your witnesses to the world of the goodness and sacredness of all life. And may our hope and faith 
transform the world for your glory. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Sister Amada. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as Tom and I did. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss another episode of Always On Mission, Evangelizing in Challenging Times. God bless.